heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting, is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy, because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart, and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from Him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now, and the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a clear distinction. So you said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like a hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's 
healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple, he's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. We believe the best way to understand the Bible is to look at its overall narrative. So we're going to do this by taking individual. All right, so I know you're thinking, wow, David, you took like an hour to do that. It was like six <laughs> minutes. You should have just played that and been done with it last two weeks ago. So yes, um, that, that I just wanted to remind everyone of sort of what we covered last uh, two weeks ago, just to sort of, because mine is going to continue on from there, on to that sort of like growing the kingdom of God. So I, I wanted to today start with talking about the kingdom of God. Before we do that, though, I just would like to go uh, to God in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you that you are so good and that we have the opportunity to come together to meet together corporately and to, 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 to spend more time in your presence. Lord, I just pray that you will speak through me today and that you will have prepared everyone's hearts to, to, to hear it. In your name, amen. So at the beginning, or in, in the, the movie uh, Princess Bride, one of the uh, villains continually uses the word inconceivable, specifically when he's talking about the hero overcoming again and again the obstacles put in front of him to prevent him from saving the princess. And he continues to do it, and every single time he overcomes uh, an obstacle, the villain says, inconceivable. At one point, one of his henchmen looks at him and goes, I think you don't know what that word means. Because the word maybe he should be using was improbable or unlikely, but not inconceivable. It could be conceived that people could have overcome the obstacles put in front of them. I find in the same way that there are phrases that are used in the Bible that we use incorrectly, or at least not to the full extent of what they're supposed to be. So the first one I want to start with today is the gospel. 
Now, most people would tell me the gospel means good news. But hopefully, you just recognize that there's a distinction between that type of good news, that it's not the same type of thing as saying, good news, I found pizza in the fridge. (laughs) Or good news, so far it looks like no one's sleeping. (laughs) Good news. No, this, this Greek word that is used in the Gospels is euangelion. And so it has context and meaning in that society before Jesus. And so we need to recognize that that usage and what it did and what it meant to them because it has some of that rolled into it as it gets used in the Gospels. <clears throat> so the Greek usage is about a royal and official message. It's not just any message, it's a royal and official message. The Romans used it in a slightly different way. In their case, they were talking about the ascension or birthday and they were sending out a message basically being like, hey, look, the, uh, the emperor's got a birthday, or more importantly, we have the ascension of an emperor. Now, why is that a big deal to them? Well, when an emperor dies and you don't have a next emperor in line, the concern is civil war. Because there might not be that next one who takes on, maybe multiple people want it, and so the concern is, is that you end up in a civil war where multiple leaders are fighting to be the new emperor. So when you hear finally that there is one, you go, whew, that's good. And then they're letting you know things like, ah, you know, he's going to bring justice and all those type of things, which is not that different than what we hear when we get our new president, right? Well, ah, things are going to be better, things are going to be great. And we recognize in the same way, it's maybe not as great as, it didn't change much. It's about the same. Jewish usage merges those ideas of this official message and this emperor idea. It brings in it with it some of these writings of Isaiah. We're declaring Yahweh's long-awaited victory over evil and the rescue of his people. So this is a royal message about these things. So it brings these ideas together. So it's not just good news. It's a good news about something specific. The gospel itself refers to the proclamation that Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, is the one true and only Lord of the world. The kingdom of God was inaugurated in Jesus' death, and therefore God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and God's world is going to be renewed. So it's a message about Jesus being king of the world. It's not just a message about good news. It's a very specific message about Jesus. The next one that we'll talk about is Son of Man. Hopefully, you recognize that it's more than a claim about being a son of a guy. It's very clear where you can see this in Matthew 26, when he is, Jesus is being, uh, this is during his trial, and he responds and, and, and is talking, and he says, but Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a Daniel 7 reference. Now, most of you will have read Daniel 1 through 6, because those pretty much make sense. And then you get into the visions and prophecies and stuff like that, and they get a little weird. So Daniel 7 is a strange one. So it starts off with this vision of four beasts coming out of the sea. And these beasts are creating havoc throughout the world. 
They're obviously very strange looking. Um, and then what we see as that vision progresses forward is we see God and he begins to judge these beasts and puts them on trial and brings their sort of their reign to a conclusion. Post that, you see one like a son of man coming with the clouds. And he takes up ruling on that empty throne there next to God. And all of humanity worships him. That's a pretty weird one in Daniel 7 to here. Here we've got someone coming up and ruling next to, to God. He's a son of a man, so he's just a man. But then humanity worships him. So now we have this claim about him being much more than just a man. He's a God-man. And that's really different. And so when Jesus makes this claim about being son of man, he is wrapping all of his Daniel 7 context and saying, hey, this is what I'm saying. And this is one of those reasons why as you read through the Gospels, you see people lose their minds when he starts using this phrase because he's making a claim that is so much more than son of a guy. It's so much more than that. All right, son of God. I know you're going to be a little shocked at this, hopefully not too shocked. It's not a claim about being God's son. To the Jewish mind, at that point, they understood that God's nature was complex. If you look at you know, Genesis 1, you've got God's spirit broods over the water. We talked last week or two weeks ago about God's presence and his glory and how it's, he's both everywhere and yet he's in specific locations. Then you've got things like the angel of the Lord, which if you look at the story of Gideon, Gideon, when he, you know, the angel of the Lord is talking to him, he says, like, the Lord will be with you. And then he says, I will be with you. And the Lord will be with you. I will, I. And so he goes back and forth. And you recognize the fact that they're using these words as the idea that God is both this thing, and yet he's more. He's distinct, and yet he's, he is. And God's wisdom is the same. If you look at Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, it says, the wis- God's wisdom was with him at the beginning. Not he was wisdom, like he was with him. So there was this distinct understanding. God's complex nature, again, this could be a giant sermon just in and of itself, um, but the idea is, is the Jewish mind at that time understood that God was complex. He was not simple, but they did not have a Trinitarian view at that point. So when people are saying son of God, a Jewish person is saying son of God, they're not making a claim about God's divinity. You can look again at the same type of thing. Daniel 7 is in existence at the point when Jesus is there. And so people are struggling with this. You can read into other sort of writings about the idea, the fact that they're trying to figure out who is this God-man? What does that mean? How is this supposed to make any sense to us? So then what does God, Son of Man or Son of God mean to them? Um, and so we go to 2 Samuel 7, 14 to 16. I will be, a, and this is, God, uh, this is God talking to David. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, who I may remove from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And you can see this again in, second, uh, in Psalm 2.7 and Psalm 89.27. So what's happening is God is adopting the line of David in a significantly unique way, and it becomes a title for that Davidic line of kings, son of God. 
Now, as we start to get even farther forward, it becomes a more significant title. And you can, we find these writings even in the same like, locations where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. We find these writings about basically the Son of God becomes a messianic title. Now, for most of us, maybe we don't even know for sure what Messiah means because we have all this, we know what, ha- what the full story turned out to be. So the Messiah, full context, sort of here as best I can summon one sentence, is the future Jewish king from the Davidic line who will bring a kingdom that would never end and defeat the serpent from the garden which would deliver his people from sin. That's a lot. Simpler explanation is it's the expectation of the Messiah at that point was he would be a human of the line of David and would be a conquering king. That was the expectation of what son of God was. So it's a messianic title and they're expecting a human conquering king. One more reason, you know, you notice that you'll see Jesus sort of avoiding this title and say, you know, and saying other things like you, we saw earlier, son of man, because of the idea that there was so much context built into it. Not the only reason, but one of the important reasons to avoid this title. So when we look forward and we see through this, we get a whole different perspective on what son of God means. <clears throat> So as we start to bring these things together, we've got the Messiah claim. But because we are on the other side of the cross, we can allow that Son of God context to mean more things to us. So no longer to us does it just mean the hope of a human Messiah. Now it's actually God actively saving his people because we see that it is also God's Son. So to us, Son of God can still continually mean God actively saving his people. But we need to remember what that title meant before which was, it was the hope of a Messiah, a specific Messiah, a human Messiah. And so Son of God carries through more context than when you have these ideas. You start to look at all three of these phrases, and you'll notice something running through them. Kingdom and ruling. All three of these have this kingdom ruling running through them. So we want to start to move here then into the idea of what is the kingdom of God. And Here we have this understanding, which is, you'll notice as I was talking through, that I was referring to God as ruling now, as Jesus is ruling now. Do you see that? Is Jesus ruling now? The story told by all four Gospels is the story of how God became king, not by the usual means of military revolution, but by the inauguration of sovereignty during Jesus' public career and the strange but decisive victory on the cross itself. It's a quote from N.T. Wright. As we look at the, the point leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, we see him getting a royal robe and a crown and then an elevated position. All four Gospels agree that above Jesus' head is hung the sign, King of the Jews. So for the Gospel writers, as they're writing this, they are challenging us to ask a different question, which is... How would it look when God becomes king? And what they're challenging us to do here is see the fact that this, this is what it looks for God to become king. Not something different, not a military revolution. This is how God becomes king. If we move forward, we see Mark 9.1, and Jesus is talking, and he says, and saying to them, truly, I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You can see this in a couple other places. Now, 
You can do a couple things with that. You can either figure Jesus got it wrong, somebody's got really, really long life and is still hanging out someplace, <laughs> or it happened. Matthew 28, 18 is after Jesus rose, and he says, then Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So the resurrection is the revelation to chosen witnesses of the fact that Jesus, who died on the cross, is indeed king, conqueror of death and sin, Lord and savior of all. The resurrection is not the reversal of a defeat, but the proclamation of a victory. The king reigns from the tree. The reign of God has indeed come upon us, and its sign is not a golden throne, but a wooden cross. Now the next question maybe you're thinking is, how can you say Jesus became king when God has always been king of the world. If you wrote, go to Psalm 29.10, God sits as king forever. Psalm 96 claimed about God ruling the whole world. Okay, true. If you start in Genesis 1 and you skip to the Gospels, you notice, you, you, you start to think something weird, which is, look, if you go one, one and two, and then you go to the Gospels, here Jesus is saying, like, the kingdom of God is near. Where did it go? Wasn't it, you know, it was there at the beginning. Ah, Genesis 3. We've got the rebellion. So they, they rebel against God. God gives them very specific things that they're supposed to be doing, um, designs them in a certain way, and they rebel against that design. So they choose to be less human. So, and you can see this mirrored in, two, in, in both the story of Adam and Eve, and then again in the story of Israel, which is, you get this glorious beginnings, this rich vocations, this rich job description of what they're supposed to be doing, and then horrible failure and ex exile. Well, Genesis 1 to 3, you see that with, Abraham, or with, um, with Adam. And then, again, the same thing with you know, Abraham, where he's given these just amazing opportunity to be you know, to, to the benefit of the whole world. And by the end, we reach Malachi, they're just a miserable wreck. They're not even helpful to their own people, let alone to the world. <laughs> so where did the kingdom go? Well, everything on earth is not God's will. So that's where we are at this point, which is here we, here we are, you know, Jesus is arriving, and we've got everything isn't God's will. It's not that God is not still king of the world. If you look at things like the story of Jesus, or uh, of God saving Israel or the way he judges different kings along the way, clearly God is still king of the world. He is still ruling. But there's something about God's will on earth as it is in heaven that isn't still there. It's, it's still not there. And so that's where we are at this point is, you know, Jesus shows up and brings something new. <clears throat> so yes, the son of God always had total authority in heaven and on earth. But when he had done the great work of redemption, once and for all, God exalted him as the God-man, the redeemer, the risen one to his right hand, and is now as never before, put the rule of the universe and the mission in the church into the hands of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, the son of God. Okay, well, but maybe the question is, have you seen the state of the world recently? <coughs> Not so great. This would be the response of the Gospels to that. 
Matthew 13 has three very significant sort of parables, all with the same kind of idea, which is the parable of the sower, he's planting something and he's waiting for it to grow. The parable of the mustard seed, it starts small, not really recognizable, and once it grows, it's this huge thing, super different from the original what it is. Parable of the yeast, it's this yeast being mixed into the full dough, and when it's done, it has completely changed the way the dough is. Luke 19.11 just, just comes out and says it straight up. He tells the parable, because some believed the kingdom of God was appear immediately. And so the parable of the minas, which is this idea of here, God gives people, gives these uh, servants um, these minas, this money, basically, and says, you know, grow it. And so they do. And so this is the idea here is, is that it's here, but it's not fully. It's growing. It's continuing forward. Ephesians 1, 20 to 21. Where was Paul when he wrote Ephesians? Anybody? Yes, he was in prison. Listen what he says. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly far places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Paul is making the claim, God is ruling while well, I'm sitting here in this prison cell. If anybody gets it, he does. He's saying that's the case. As contrary or as strange as it is to the world or even to us at times. So we're living between Jesus' accomplishment of the reign of God and its full implementation. So where are we so far? Three phrases. We're talking about kingdom and ruling. Jesus is ruling the world. God always ruled the world, and yet God's will was not always done. And now we live between the initiation of the kingdom and its full implementation. So then the question becomes, what's our role in all of this? Ephesians 3, 10 to 11 says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made to known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you go back to the beginning, and we're given this rule, or, you know, this, this order to have dominion, and so we are to, we're to rule. And Psalm 8 reaffirms this. So to me, that's a great thing, because I have lots of martial arts training, so I can finally grow the kingdom. Finally, all this work, all this practice is for something. But then if you move back to Genesis 1 and you look at where he's talking to them about, he's, he's giving them this gar the garden and he's, say, you know, he's saying to multiply and subdue and fill it. So if it's gardening, maybe my sword's not the right choice. Maybe more of a shovel. Now, if you look at the commands, subdue the earth, fill the earth, those sort of come out of the blue. God says, here, do these things. What, was there a manual that came with this? Like, how am I supposed to know what to do with that? So we go very to the beginning, which is the earth is without form and void. And that word, form and void, is tohu abohu, which is wilderness, chaos, not functioning as it should. And just sort of a picture to sort of make it feel like there's not wilderness chaos um, to go with that. 
So God takes something that is formless and void, and by the end of Genesis 1, we have something that is formed. It's taken, and it, it looks like something. So God takes it, and he orders it. Um, you, know, you see, again, through this whole Genesis portion, which is after its kind, after its kind, after its kind, he keeps putting everything in its correct place. So he is, he is ordering. He's bringing from order from chaos. That's what he's doing here. Um, if you look at the word good as he continues to do these things, that word good has a couple sort of context to it. It's the ideas of both quality and proper function. So he's saying both like, hey, look, it's got good quality and it's functioning correctly. So that's why when he says Adam without Eve is not good, he is saying, here, I gave you three commands. So do the earth, fill the earth, multiply. It's going to be really hard for Adam to multiply by himself. So he can't function properly. So he's given Eve so that he can lip, you know, so he can do these things. So here we are, we're to be bringing order from chaos. Sin can create this disorder, and that's why we see this sort of, you know, this breaking of the order and, you know, exile, which is that if as we sin, we create disorder. And so we are being called to live under God's will, because that is how we live in a fully ordered life. So in our case, how do we live out? Go back, please. Zedek. The ordered life. And one of those ways is our jobs. So in my case, I bring order through my calculator or computer or other things. That is how I bring order from chaos. What is your way in your job that you bring order from chaos? So you're supposed to take care of the poor, um, bringing order there, prison ministries, captains set free. No, I'm not saying we should just release everyone from prison, but if you look at our prison system and the mess that it is, you look at the statistics on recidivism or whatever, it needs some work. It needs to be ordered. Someone needs to step in here and, and bring in a kingdom perspective of how this looks. The environment is no different. If you just let people run rampant, they make all types of crazy things. Church unity. We're not ordered. We're not working correctly. We're not functioning as we should if we don't let church unity be there or continuing to work on it. So that's the first one, subdue the earth. Second one is fill the earth. And so you'll see at the beginning... Again, with this, the story, there's a symmetry in the days, days one through three, and then days four through six. God creates light and separates darkness, so he creates day and night. And day four, the sun and the moon are created to go in those places. Day two, God separates the water and creates oceans and skies. And then he puts in sea creatures for the oceans and birds for the skies. He creates land and fills it with plants and animals. And then day six, you get land, animals, and man. So here we have this idea that we are taking something and we're putting it in something, you know, to, to sort of bring that more to it. We're bringing that potential out. Uh, another way that this can be looked at is the word cultivate, which is used a couple different times, is the idea here of, of bringing out its potential. 
So we bring out something's potential. That's, so when we're told to fill the earth, we're talking about bringing out the potential of the thing that we're interacting with. So where can we bring out potential? We have a lot of places where we can bring out potential. So we've got, again, our jobs, where we can continue to bring out potential. So not only can we bring order to our jobs, but we can bring out potential. We can bring out potential in our marriages, in our friendships. We can bring out it in discoveries in medicine, in agriculture. We're bringing out potential. Um, multiple people here can attest to the potential that has been brought forward by the medical community that allows them to live uh, a more fuller, richer life than would have otherwise been potentially possible because of this idea of bringing out potential. And so we are called in the same way to do the same thing. We are to bring out that potential. Okay, so going on to the next one, Zadok, I believe I should be two slides down now. Yeah, one more, there we go. Upside down kingdom. Uh, Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now he is talking to the church at Laodicea at this point, uh, Jesus is, and he's saying, conquer in the way that I conquered. Now, I can't say I ter terribly like this one, but it is what it is. He's saying to conquer the way I conquered. How did Jesus conquer? He conquered through suffering and sacrifice. And so we are called in the same way to conquer. Whether we like it or not, it is what it is. Romans 12, 19 to 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 1 Peter 5, 8-10. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So, how does suffering bring the kingdom? Three ways that I'm going to list today. Obviously, there are probably plenty more. Um, it opens up others to conviction of sin through the Holy Spirit. You can see this in the centurion. Uh, again, a couple different places some say slightly different things, but the same idea, which is certainly this man was innocent or certainly this man was the son of God. Something about the idea of the fact that there was significant understanding that changed between the way they were torturing him and after his death. Something was changed. There was a heart change that occurred in him during that portion. Number two, it prevents evil from gaining control of God's people. <clears throat> Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Matthew 26, 52, this is when the, the guards and the priests have come and they're taking away Jesus to his trial. Um, Jesus says, put away your sword back in its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. So we can either let sin, hatred, anger control us, or we can let God lead us. Those are our choices. And Jesus is saying, you know, if you go down, start going down that road of using the sword, then you let evil and sin control you instead of the other. 
Number three, we grow in our knowledge of God. Romans 5, 3 to 4, we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. As Stephen talked about last week, the idea is, is that we need to continually grow in our knowledge of God. And so suffering is one more way for us to be able to do that, to grow in that character, to grow in that knowledge of him. And that helps us to be better kingdom bringers because we know God better. So I want to do a couple clarifications about suffering. Um, we must use... These are statements that are contrary to what I would argue here, which is we must use force against those who hate the gospel or it might be lost. Um, You see so popular in our culture things like don't tread on me or if they come for me, I'm going to pull up my guns and use them. Uh Uh-uh. That's not what we're called to do. We are not called to that. Again, if we do not defend our way of life, we will be forced to surrender our faith. That is not what we're called to do. We are called to conquer in the way that Jesus conquered. The Lord's Prayer has in it, deliver me from evil. So I'm not saying that we can't pray to be delivered from evil, but I am saying that if it comes, it comes. And we need to see that potentially it is not just uh, a logical outworking. So if you bring, um, bring order from chaos, that means you have to tell somebody or tell something it's in chaos. Okay, if you walk into a room and it's dirty, the room probably doesn't care. But if you tell somebody their life is in chaos, (laughs) I don't know about you, but plenty of people don't take that too well. Um, To tell them you're going to bring out their potential means that they haven't reached it yet. Guess what? People don't like to hear that in most cases. So it is both a logical outworking that, yes, as we bring these other things, we will end up with people rejecting us and treating us poorly. But it is also an opportunity for us to be still continued kingdom bringers, not just a, well, this is a bad side benefit or a, you know, a side outcome. It is a benefit that we can use. Uh, John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and then darkness has not overcome it. And as, just as we know that Jesus was not overcome, we also know that we will not be overcome because of him. So whether we like it or not, like I said, this is not my favorite one, suffering is a part of the Christian life. So uh, here's another just super good quote I got from a book just recently. A communist officer told a Christian he was beating, I am almighty as you suppose your God to be. I can kill you. The Christian answered, the power is all on my side. I can love you while you torture me to death. (laughs) That's, That's a lot. <clears throat> that's, you know, it, it's definitely not one that I'm, I'm like I said, I'm, I'm excited about, but it is what it, what it is here. So, <clears throat> where are we up to this point? One, we have the, th- oh, I'm sorry. Those, those who would implement Jesus' kingdom are prone to forget the way in which Jesus became king of the world. It was not through force, but through suffering and sacrifice. The principalities we confront are cruel, mean, and dirty. Martyrdom of one sort or another, suffering of one sort or another, is what kingdom bringers must expect. Our story is not a power story, but a love story. We are called to be kingdom people and also cross people. 
Where do we go from here? Uh, so the three, what we've covered so far is there are three phases, kingdom and ruling runs through them. Jesus is ruling the world. God always yet ruled the world, and yet God's will was not always done. We live between the initiation of the kingdom and its full implementation. As agents of the kingdom, we have a couple opportunities here. One, we bring order from chaos. We bring out potential, and we conquer like Jesus conquered. <clears throat> So as we start to talk about the kingdom, it can seem pretty overwhelming to say, I'm going to live into the kingdom. How do I do that? What's my part? What's my role compared to someone else's? And I would say one place to look is something like what the cathedrals were done. When the cathedrals were made, or much of these major <coughs> cathedrals, they were built over potentially at least 100 years or more. And so someone might work on one aspect of one part of a building for their entire life. That's it. They weren't, they might never even have seen the building completed. They got to work on the foundation or something else. They took forever to build. And that is what that person did. They did their role. The, the designer gave them their section and said, here's what I want you to do. Work on it. In the same way, God's calling us the same type of thing. He is giving us specific opportunities in our lives to live out and to be agents of the kingdom. We may not have the full picture, I don't, of what that looks like, but we have this confidence, which is that what is the final thing and what it will look like will be amazing. It will be incredible. It will be breathtaking. What we have as a, our responsibility is to live into that and to be those agents of the kingdom. So as I close today, uh, two questions I would leave you with. How will you live what we discussed in your job, family, and all of creation? What are areas where God is calling you to be more involved in the kingdom? And I'll close with prayer today. Lord, I thank you that we are ambassadors for you. I thank you, Lord, that you came and you did bring your kingship to the world. I pray that you will show us our, our way of living into it and that we will continue to grow in you more so that we can continue to be more of bringing the, you know, the kingdom to, to this world. In your name, amen.